The following is a production of the Event Safety Alliance. Hello, and welcome to the Event Safety Podcast. My name is Eric Colby, and on this episode, we will be focusing on crowd management and crowd safety. Now, here's your host, Steve Edelman. Uh, Thank you, Eric Colby. Uh, This is Steve Edelman. I'm Vice President of the Event Safety Alliance. And on this podcast, uh, we're going to talk about an incident that happened on Friday, February 15 in San Francisco, where there was a performance of the musical Hamilton. Um, And for people who know just a bit of history, they know how it ends. That's not really where the action is. But as it turns out, there was a crowd panic uh, which is what we're going to talk about, related to the utterly well-known historical fact, uh-oh, spoiler alert, here it comes, Alexander Hamilton dies at the end from a gunshot. There was a duel, and guns were fired in the performance. But somehow that became the subject of a crowd panic, and that's what we're going to talk about today. So I, Steve Edelman, am here with Danielle Hernandez from Furman University and our moderator and spokesman, Eric Colby, from uh, the Metropolitan Opera in New York. And uh, we're going to talk about crowds and crowd management. So to start, um, I gave the basic facts, and I guess I'll pose the question to Danielle and Eric. You guys have houses, you have patrons in front of house and production crews back of house, how would you expect a crowd to behave if there was the thought that there was some kind of danger, whether it was an active shooter or something else? What would you expect people to do? Well, in general, I would expect the crowd to try to evacuate. Uh, I would anticipate that family groups would do everything they could to stay together. Some people would freeze and not move at all. Um, a bunch of people would wait for someone else to lead them out or to tell them to leave. Uh, it's really important that your house managers know what to do if they have to evacuate an audience um, to help lead them away as opposed to just waiting for them to figure out on their own that they should leave. And, you know, one of the things we, we've learned over time is in the unlikely event of an emergency evacuation, people generally do not panic. Uh, For the most part, people do uh, act in an orderly fashion. And indeed, looking at firsthand reports of what happened in San Francisco, um, a lot of the audience did not start climbing all over each other to get out. And while there were some uh, injuries, that tended to be in the minimum. So as you said, some people will freak. There will be some who will look uh, immediately to their instincts and also lead others just by uh, how they go and follow me. And the majority of the crowd will look for a cue. Having been through um, theater evacuations, most people, my experience has been, really don't panic. And if everybody does as they're instructed, and uh, it's really pretty simple, um, everybody should get out safely. What we're seeing 
in current events, in addition to Hamilton, there was the Global Citizen event in New York, which was more of a calculated, and we should talk about that uh, as well, Steve uh, and Danielle, how um, this was kind of not accidental, but um, a, a cognitive um, motivated uh, crowd rush. But it's kind of the equivalent of what we're seeing today with, I think, the consciousness of people, uh, you know, the first thing that comes to mind when somebody gets alarmed and you don't know what's going on is what? Gone! Right. Oh my God, and, gone! And that's the modern day equivalent of yelling fire in a crowded theater. Right. Which and is illegal. And it's something, yes, it's illegal. And it's something we've debated for decades, and uh, we still don't have all the answers. Well, that's right. So you certainly can't blame people in 2019 for being touchy and fearful about the possibility of an active shooter. It's in the news all the time. There actually had been an active shooter earlier that day in Chicago. So, you know, it certainly is in the public consciousness, even if the numbers of active shooter incidents are not nearly reflective of the amount of notoriety that these incidents get because they're all unacceptable and they're all horrible. So do you think that we should now anticipate a level of panic that we haven't in the past? Well, I, this is Steve. I, I think that we should anticipate a level of nervousness and willingness to think that there is an active shooter that didn't exist even five years ago. Um, and that's what we saw in San Francisco. And that's what we saw as Eric alluded to um, at the global citizen festival in New York city last year, um, where apparently there was a fight and somebody stepped on an empty plastic water bottle and somebody else thought that that sounded like gunshots. And there was this mass movement of the crowd. But I think what we see and, and what you guys both alluded to, um, Danielle and Eric, is most people don't panic. And there's actually quite a historical record about this. It just happens to mostly be in the context of fires because there have been a lot of those over the years and active shooters are a relatively recent phenomenon. And what we see in fire cases is something that's come to be known as the 10-80-10 rule or it's basically the bell-shaped curve. And what that is, is 10% of people will perceive what the danger is and react quickly and appropriately. And, you know, God willing, those are people in some position of authority and leadership because they get it. That's 10%. So that's a very small number of people in any given crowd. 80%, so the fat part of the bell-shaped curve, they do what we already see witness accounts indicating happened at the Hamilton show in San Francisco two Friday nights ago, which is most people kind of crouch down because they don't fully understand what's happening and therefore they don't move. They don't panic. They don't go nuts, but they don't do much of anything to move themselves from danger towards safety. They basically are sheep. Sheep are fine animals Sheep can be led, but they won't initiate movement on their own. And that's 80% of people based on historical accounts of disasters 
you know, as old as the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory fire from the early 20th century through, you know, other fires throughout the 20th century through 9-11 and every disaster in between. The last 10% in the 10-80-10 rule, the last 10%, those are the people you see on TV. Those are the ones going nuts, like, oh my God, hair on fire people. Not much you can do about them. So hopefully they will follow the 80% who are moving towards safety in a more orderly fashion. But happily, that's only 10%. And again, this is widely documented. So it's not just in San Francisco. It's not just in Central Park in New York. It is through the run of more than a century of disasters in public accommodations. So as venue operators and safety professionals and those responsible for crowd management, the people who, as you refer to, um, are looking, or we talked about looking for a cue, they need to be told what to do. Um, what is our responsibility and how are we getting the message to them? And what should we be telling them what to do and what shouldn't we? Well, we definitely should be telling them how to get out before they need to know that, like before the emergency happens. Because if you're trying to tell them during the emergency, they, they are not, there's a degree of adrenaline which makes it much harder to focus on small details. We really need to tell them earlier in the process how you get out. Here we have an announcement that plays before every show, plus everything is clearly marked. Well, and I think, you know, we can take a lot of cues from the airline industry. It's mm -hmm. the safety lecture. Yes. And uh, they have the advantage of a captive audience. And uh, at a time, although you may not be paying attention because you've heard it a thousand times before, and it's not new information, they at least know that you are in your seats, you're ready to go, the show's about to begin, and now is when we're going to tell you. And what we see in modern day venues a lot, especially larger ones who have great resources, video screens and uh, production teams to put together clever and entertaining safety announcements. It tends to happen 25 minutes before the first pitch uh, because after all there's marketing messages and patriotic themes and so many other things that uh, seem to take priority over your basic safety. And it's just, it's one of those things in the theater world that what we find we're up against a lot of the times is an artistic decision not to uh, make a safety announcement too close to the show when you've actually got everybody's attention. It's interesting to me to wonder how much of that is changing. Uh, I've gotten much less resistance to it with the increased awareness of crowd safety in general. Um, but it still does come up where people don't want to do it. We, we normally do ours at house to half, so really right before the show starts. Uh, but sometimes they'll say, well, can we do it a few minutes before that? And we normally accommodate that because it's, it's pretty reasonable. And most people are in their seats at that time. But yeah, we, we get less resistance to it than we used to. And I'm wondering if that is a national trend or just here in South Carolina. Yeah, I personally, I, I think that everybody has a captive audience at some point before the show begins. And you may as well take advantage of the fact that if you entertain people, they're more likely to pay attention. 
So I was flying out of Las Vegas a couple of weeks ago, and I'm in the TSA line waiting to present my credentials. And I see that there's a video monitor and it's Blue Man Group presenting their credentials to the TSA agent and then climbing onto the, the conveyor belt and getting told, oh no, it's only for, only for electronics and your carry-ons and not for TSA, but it's hilarious. And people would pay attention to that. So I don't think it's the message itself that is either frightening or appropriate. The message needs to get to people. And, and you know, we should talk about you know, letting people know about theatrical gunshots relevant to the San Francisco panic. But it seems to me that there's a place for amusing people as a way of getting their attention and making them understand the importance of a safety message. Safety is important. We shouldn't shy away from talking about it. And anyone who does, frankly, is just courting disaster. So who wants to talk about signage about theatrical gunshots? since we were talking about that off air. Well, Eric had brought up a point that, that I've also encountered that a lot of times the artistic direction really doesn't want to post warning signs um, of that type before a show. They tend to be okay with the strobe or haze, but they don't like um, gunshot warnings or uh, warnings about things that people might find emotionally distressing because they feel like that conflicts with the message that the show is trying to, to convey. Um, and they don't want to upstage themselves, so to speak. Have you come across that anywhere that you've worked? Um, yes. And it's, um, it's frustrating from our point of view of uh, crowd management and crowd safety. It's simply, uh, as you, as Steve said, courting disaster, not to, um, give some notice. On the other hand, where do you draw the line? How far can you go with it? If you're going to post signs, keep it simple, keep it straightforward, uh, make it readable, put it in, in, a, in a spot that is uh, that everybody can see, put a border around it because we've been told that gets people to look at it. Simple little things like that. But more than a sentence or two, um, and it's, it's self-defeating. Who reads the back of a, a, a ticket at a ball game telling you to look out for flying bats and balls, et cetera, and so on? Um, the fine print, uh, nobody's going to look at. So whether it's posting signs or in the case of a performing arts center, um, do you have super title screens? Do you have titles? Uh, well, I guess maybe that's uh, mostly an opera-related thing. Uh, screens for translation um, someplace where you can put it in if you can do it in an entertaining way well that's spectacular but i don't think that's necessarily uh, appropriate for all venues and uh, it's kind of like my feeling is how do we sneak this in here and it shouldn't be the case yeah i i agree with the entertaining isn't always appropriate there are some events where that, that we do that it would be absolutely amazingly perfect and other events where it would be the completely wrong tone to make it amusing. Um, that doesn't mean that we aren't capable of conveying the message. Uh, something that, that I do see sometimes, I see people saying, well, we can put it in the program, which in my head is better than nothing, 
Well, in, in a lot but of places. It seems to me it's like, you know, you're really expecting a lot that someone is going to read that. Just well, the I, thing before sorry. the show starts. And I think, um, Steve, you can check me on this as well, Danielle, what, uh, what the campus policies are. But in a lot of cases, the only reason it's in a program is because it's legally required to have something printed that has your uh, emergency evacuation diagram or uh, some notice about what to do. Is that I, I don't think that if they if they could get away without doing it, they it wouldn't be done. Um, Steve, can you address that? Um, I'm thinking about the university in which I teach every week and I'm not, well, there's no program. Um, there is a flip chart on the back wall of the classroom where I, I do one of my classes. Um, but I, I think that the, the law gives a clearer instruction, even if ultimately it's subject to everyone's application. So the clearer instruction is, you've heard this from me many times, everyone has a duty to behave reasonably under their circumstances. So the appropriateness of messaging is going to depend on the context in which it's given. Um, you know, if you've got a crowd of, I don't know, um, more senior opera goers, um, you know, maybe something that's written would be okay so long as it's in a large enough font size so that they can realistically see it, you know, bigger than a ticket back. Um, you know, if it's kids who are likely to be consuming you know, either alcohol or the other types of controlled substances of choice, then, you know, a different kind of messaging is going to have to be used because they're not going to stop and read stuff. And so the law gives you the guidance that whatever is going to work in your context, that's what you have to do, which forces you to think what's going to work in our context. Personally, I think that's good advice. You know, people should be thinking about what's going to work in their context. And if the answer isn't one answer that is the best practice in all situations, I'm fine with that. You know, we're all sentient beings. Let's use the brains that we have. Think about our events, which will be different even, you know, within the same venue. You'll attract different types of crowds depending on the event it is. So, the law requires you to do what is reasonable under your circumstances. I think that makes a lot of sense. I guess the question is, can you guys do that? Is that a reasonable expectation that someone who is an event organizer, whether they're the promoter or venue manager or, you know, someone working back of house, is it reasonable to expect that they will think about who's going to be in the building or who's going to be at our festival or our corporate activation? Is it reasonable to ask the organizer of an event to think about who's going to be here? What type of messaging is most likely to reach them so that we reduce the 80% of people who are sheep down to something that's more manageable so that we increase the likelihood of a successful outcome? Is that a reasonable expectation? You know, that, that's a really interesting idea. Um, and um, Danielle, since you have multiple different types of events 
that you deal with, it, it got me thinking, is, is there a way you can have, it's kind of a multiple choice thing. You have, you have your, your message to get across, which is universal, but yeah, the delivery methods for this crowd versus that crowd and the, you know, what, what fits and can you, for outside presenters, make it part of your contracting uh, phase when booking the events that this is required and you can choose from column A, column B, or column C, but you have to choose one of these and involve the producers in it. And, you know, especially in a, uh, in, in, a, in a campus setting um, or anywhere with a creative department, um, you could probably have some fun crafting the different messages specifically for different audience types. Well, I would love to have more resources at my disposal because I think there's a ton of opportunities there. Um, and I, I do see that becoming more feasible in the future. But right now, I don't have any problems communicating the message at the beginning of an event, but if an event is multiple hours long, we insist that it's repeated throughout the day, but I don't have any way to guarantee that every single person has heard it at least once. Well, but this is where we get to the reasonable under their circumstances part of mm -hmm. the standard. Yeah, we're, we're certainly, uh, we certainly make an effort and the crowd managers are trained as to what to do if there's an evacuation or other emergency. Um, so we are working to communicate it in multiple ways um, and cover the bases more than one way. But it is, it is a challenge and I do think there's room for opportunity, some different creative outlets. And I wonder if that's the sort of thing that you could almost make a package of and say, as you were saying, pick pick these things and maybe we can do a video message and maybe we can do a spoken message. Maybe you could act it out in interpretive dance and that would be my favorite way to do it because <laughs> um, I think there's some great options there. Um, my In relation to working with producers, at the level I'm working with, I'm not working with producers. This is a smaller level touring stuff that calls us two days before and, and, and they come with their van and their little box truck. And we, tomorrow we have Pete the cat coming in for, you know, 2,500 small children. It will be adorable twice. Um, but you know, we will have a safety meeting with them. We will play our announcement. They will play their announcements. Um, but it's a, it's a package thing. It, it doesn't have any video whatsoever. And uh, I, I think there are more creative ways to do it. We just have used safety as a journey <laughs> and we just move along it and do the best we can and improve as we go because I think there's always better ways and, and more interesting ways and better ways to communicate to to not just the audience but to the production crew and the traveling crew and the performers and all of those people that are all affected when something goes slightly sideways or very sideways but Slightly. <laughs> well, so here's the silver lining to all of this, um, because we're talking about some, you know, potential scary scenarios yeah, here. Brighten the mood here, Eric. <laughs> I think the silver lining that, you know, we can all find in this is that it is more part of the discussion in the public consciousness now. And the, the reasons for it um, are not the point. The point is is that it's 
something that used to be taken for granted. It's not anymore. And so it, I think, inspires people to be more open to the idea of it. And um, I think there's a lot of people who will want some sort of uh, announcement, who will want to be told what to do. It gets back to the 108010 example that uh, the more we can communicate information in all, all of our discussion today about messaging, that you got to have something, you have to talk with them somehow. And a lot of it is just eliminating as many of the unknowns as possible, but the people are actually talking about it and being concerned about it. Uh, we live in a see something, say something culture while that used to be uh, not necessarily taken for granted. There's still a lot of people I see it every day. They see something, they don't say a damn thing. Um, how they're saying it, it, knowing that there's somebody there that they can say it to rather than screaming uh, fire in a crowded theater, um, what to do about it. But the fact that people are talking about it, that we're talking about it, that there is a discussion about it, I, I think ultimately uh, serves us well. Um, I also think that there's a much greater buy-in to safety messaging both in your audience and in your production crews, because the, the stories people realize now that that stuff matters to them too. I used to get the most glazed over stares when I was like, and today we're going to talk about, you know, what we have to do if we have to evacuate and where the first aid kit is. And now everybody's like, okay, where is it? Okay. What do we do? Where do we meet? And I think, you know, again, that's a silver lining. I also believe that the Event Safety Alliance is going to package some safety messaging. So maybe that will come up in the future that people can uh, use that as a resource. And that could be fun because Steve knows people in the Blue Band group. <laughs> <laughs> it actually is one of the things that we're working on. And as you know, since I love Blue Man Group, I mean that... They'd be the, great. <laughs> yeah, they would be great. Um, <laughs> Whatever the circumstance, there is some messaging that will grab people's attention. And obviously, just like in every other situation, one size does not fit all. But your point is well taken. Safety is something that we now can talk about. Granted, there are still a few notable corporate exceptions where they just don't want to talk about safety. And, you know, notwithstanding that the horse has left the barn, they are covering their eyes like a little kid saying, you can't see me when they're covering their own eyes. Fine. They'll be the last ones to the party. As for most other people, you know, the pushback that we got five or 10 years ago when they saw magnetometers or security guards at the entrance, that's gone. You know, now it's, there's not even a lot of pushback when people have to bring their stuff in clear plastic bags anymore. We just kind of got used to it. And I think the rationale for stuff like that is pretty self-evident because we see it in the news too often anyway. So... Yeah, I think that is a definite silver lining in a very dark cloud. You know, we live in increasingly dangerous times and we have lots of reason to be worried about things, whether real or imagined, but at least it allows us to talk about safety like we're grown-ups, like we're going into public and we ought to be taking reasonable precautions. Now we can do that, again, with a few notable exceptions and hopefully they'll come around. It's just a question of when. So I, I'm going to add to, you know, silver lining issues. Um, I think being able to talk about 
crowds and crowd management allows us to get past the shiny object of only talking about active shooters and the only solution if there's any kind of crowd-related issue is either run or hide or fight, which simply doesn't work all that well in a lot of entertainment spaces for a lot of environmental reasons and also reasons having to do with our crowds at live events and what they're doing and what they're paying attention to. But that's fine because there are a lot of other incidents which require a crowd to be managed appropriately, such as, you know, severe weather or, you know, the artist can't perform or there's some other reason to delay or you just can't do things the way they were planned, but things will still happen and the crowd needs to be managed. So I think the conversation having gone beyond the shiny object du jour, you know, active shooters, that's useful because it allows us to talk about crowds and crowd psychology and the way human beings actually respond to stimulus like grownups. Daniel, do you want to add something? I, I also think that we can expand it even a little farther. There's some great opportunities for better crowd management in both ingress and egress. Um, a lot of times people will, that's a great time to tell people where they're parked, how to get in and out, um, other safety information, also just managing that giant fluctuation of people on the go at a very specific time. There, there are ways that are better and there are ways that are just super clunky. Um, and uh, I think by expanding the conversation, we can get into some of the psychology behind how people move in groups and manage some of those processes a little bit better, especially understanding things like family groups staying together at, at the expense of everything. And I totally get that. I would not leave a building without my own children and I wouldn't care what was going on in it. Uh, so I, I wouldn't reasonably expect that of any other parent, which is a large portion, portion of the audiences that come to my building are families. So of course they're going to try to stay together, but that affects how the group moves, which is an important thing to consider when you are managing the crowd moving, be it at the end of an event or at the beginning of an event, or if you're dealing with something uh, in the evacuation or other incident sort of situation. Yeah, I mean, Danielle, you're, you're absolutely right about that. You know, you can do scientific modeling of how long it takes a crowd to evacuate a given space, and those models are mathematically sound, but suffer from the same issue that every other model does, which is they're only as good as the data that's used in the model. So it depends on what the audience is. If the audience is comprised of families, they will move as fast as the slowest member of the family. But it's not just families. Peer groups, similarly, tend to stay together. People who came together will try to leave together. So again, they're only as fast as the slowest member of the group. Same thing if somebody is impaired, they will slow everyone down. You know, if somebody has a mobility issue, they'll slow everyone down. People need more space because they want to travel together and they want to do that with visual contact rather than front to back. And so you need wider egress spaces just because that's the way people walk. All of these things relate to human psychology. And so as we talk about, 
you know, we started this conversation with a crowd panic at a Hamilton show in San Francisco, and now we're talking about human psychology. Lo and behold, they're related. And anyone who is thinking about how do I manage my crowd, how do I deal with my physical circumstances and get everyone, both back of house and front of house, away safely, has to think about what will be in the minds of the people who are at my venue at the time that this thing happens. And that's not subject to a best practice, a term that I detest. It's subject to the context of an individual event. And here's a plug for an important project that the Event Safety Alliance has been working on for several years, which is the Event Safety Alliance in conjunction with ESTA, the Entertainment Services and Technology Association, has been working on creating a new ANSI standard. So ANSI is the American National Standards Institute. And we have created um, a draft crowd management standard, which once it goes through the public review process, which it's in right now, and eventually, God willing, gets approved, will become the national standard for how to think about these issues. And, you know, true to this conversation, this draft ANSI standard doesn't tell you exactly what you must do because that's going to be a function of context. Rather, it, it suggests questions that you should be asking so that you can reach an answer which is appropriate for your event, for your crowd, for your physical space, for the resources that you have available. And that's consistent with the legal duty to behave reasonably under your circumstances and also, I think, just makes sense because crowds behave differently. So I think that will be a useful project, which you know, listeners to this podcast should be looking for in a few months because they're actually, for the first time in the U.S., and as I am told, anywhere in the world, um, will be an authoritative standard for the issues to consider when managing crowds. And they are many of the same issues that we have discussed on this podcast here today. So I do have um, a resource that was uh, brought up at one of the event safety uh, summits. There was an app called Citizen Aid, and it is for specifically for people in emergencies. And it's a very simple interface, and you click on it and it gives you an option. I'm in a live incident or I want to learn and you can go through it and, and find different things to do, how to triage, how to help stop the bleed. Uh, it gives you simple advice. Like you're in a live incident, silence your phone, you know, very, very simple instructions that help walk you through how to manage yourself and people around you in different types of crises and um, i found it a very good resource uh, and i would recommend people checking it out it is available on the app store for apple and whatever the android version is of that what's the name of it again citizen aid citizen aid good tip speaking of plugging products uh danielle you've been working so now we're transitioning to uh, some final thoughts here um do you want to say a few words about uh, ESA merchandise and the merch store? 
Well, I have it on good authority that the ESA merch store is just about to go live and you can get to it from our website, theeventsafetyalliance.org. Let me make sure I just said that properly. Yeah, there's no the, but it's eventsafetyalliance.org. Eventsafetyalliance.org and then just click on the button that says store. And right now it says coming soon. And coming soon is imminent. So soon you will be able to go and get all the best ESA swag that you ever wanted. There are shirts. There are gloves. There are water bottles with first aid kits in them. That's all the stuff you ever wanted to brag about your association with ESA. And you'll be able to get it online. And, and your commitment to safety and, and working and safe. Show your peers. Yes, and you can buy presents for people. That's right. Swag that, that grows and, and shows that you're surrounded by smart kids. Wouldn't you want that? A whole group of you showing ESA colors at the same time. You can get a hard hat that says events. Yeah. <laughs> Eric, I'm going to send you one. <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry. What were you talking about? The Eric, swag store. <laughs> the swag store. Well, I'm very excited about it. <laughs> All right, well, so that's the story here. On our next episode, we'll stay in the theater and go backstage for a discussion about technical safety standards. We hope you'll join us then. Until then, this is Eric Colby reminding you to be safe.